This is Ben Gillespie interviewing Chita Ganesh at her home in Brooklyn on August 31st, 2020 for the Smithsonian Institution Archives of American Art Pandemic Project. Chita, could you tell me about your life and work and how they've changed since March of this year? Uh, yeah, so I think that um, among, the, among the main changes for me in my life and my work is um, the fact that I have been now in New York State since, is that distracting? Do you hear it? Um, I've been, I haven't left New York State since uh, the end of February, which is extremely unusual for me. Um, I travel a lot for my work, but I also spend uh, significant amounts of time in South Asia. I was very feeling very lucky and fortunate to have had the opportunity to do that right before the quarantine started. So I was actually out of the country in India and Bangladesh from December 26th to February 18th. Um, and then, so I think in, in terms of traveling, in terms of the kind of contact that I have with students and other colleagues, um, things have also um, really changed. And I think in other ways, um, it's been beneficial for my participation in certain things because I have also some autoimmune health issues that make it easier to participate and um, continue certain things on Zoom than I would have if things hadn't moved to this more remote kind of level. Well, so could you tell me a little bit about the, the projects that you've been working on then at home? Uh, yeah, so I have actually been, um, it's been quite busy during the pandemic. Um, I did, I've worked on a couple of print projects, um, one with Creative Time and one with The Kitchen, um, which were sort of initial artist response projects. Um, the one that uh, I made a comic that was co-commissioned by The Kitchen and Flash Art. Um, so it appeared in the print issue, but it also um, appeared online. And working in that form, in a graphic or comic form, is, um, it's like, was extremely uh, appropriate and, um, like, engaging for the moment because it's something, the form itself, it's, it's like origin in some ways is digital or it's kind of natural habitat at this point is digital. So that helps the circulation of that kind of work in a way that would be different from my paintings or drawings. And then um, in addition to that, uh, the comic form itself is something that's been um, interesting and um, I guess, provocative and soothing for me to use as an artist right now because in the form itself it's about how different parts are fragmented but also remain connected together as a whole. 
um, which is very much something that's been in the air and on my mind during this pandemic, yeah. Yeah, the, I mean, the comic seems really powerful right now through the, the use of the frame because mm -hmm. you have a sense of like continuity or movement between the different frames. Um, and but also the gutter where things get broken up and the, all, of what, all of what lies between what can be actually said or what it feels like it's valuable to say, there's a symbolic space for that too, so yeah. Um, so I've been working on those. I've been working on a um, collaboration with Saul Williams, who is a artist and a spoken word poet. We're like, he just, um, he released an album last year and I'm making an animation for one of the songs or with one of the songs. So I'm doing that. Um, and then I'm my own um, commission solo exhibition at the Leslie Lillman Museum was postponed um, through, so that is set to open now in about a month and a half. Um, and that, um, that was postponed by like, several months and it was unclear when it was going to open but I feel very, very lucky with that project because it's actually um, it's a series of installations so it's almost like a mural that wraps around uh, 10 windows of the museum so at this moment particularly it's extremely meaningful because it's something that can be accessed from outside and doesn't require entry into an enclosed space um, and can be seen by a much broader audience of people. I mean, anyway, museums have more of a specific audience than the street does, but I think at this time that has shrunk even more because of these institutions being closed and just very slowly starting to reopen now. And has the delay made you think any differently about that project? I mean, it sounds like the form is really ideally suited for people in the city right now. Um, but but what about the, the work itself and thinking about queer representation and feminine representation in 2020? Yeah, it really made me, well, so the project was about, was obviously gonna be exploring those issues of queer and, um, representation of queerness, of feminists, of femininity. Um, but I, it was also um, gonna draw on different kinds of utopias and thinking about the idea of queer utopia and thinking about this city in particular and um, gentrification um, and like a number of other issues where how the architecture and sex and sexuality can be expressions of power and resistance. So I think that, um, yeah, the pandemic kind of stopped me in my tracks because a lot of what I understand um, to be like queer life, queer joy, queer activism is about um, bodies coming together in public space, like, or private space, but in privatized public spaces like clubs and 
other kinds of bars or institutions, but also on the street, um, also in public sex. I mean, so there's like a lot of different ways in which obviously the pandemic would, and, and the social distancing and the radical rearrangement of intimacy and space would affect the work. I think definitely I wanted to um, pause before I continued working on the piece. I took a little bit of a break um, because I felt like it was important to figure out how to, um, I mean, as it is in general in life, but also with this pandemic to um, respond rather than react and to kind of figure out what that response would be um, in a in a more thought out way. Um, and, and a lot of my own experiences of approaching this time, um, both as an artist and as a human, have to do with being born and raised in New York and having lived here for much of my life, and also having experienced um, September 11th here in New York. So um, that was the last time I kind of, I mean, the financial crash and there were other things in between, but in terms of something where the city stopped in a way that I had never seen in my life, the last time that happened was around September 11th. And I know then as now that there were a lot of different kinds of modes of expression that were very necessary, but that were like the kind of the very first layer of reaction to what was going on. And um, also the question of how do you, um, how do you like talk about or create um, in relation to a traumatic event when that event is still undergoing, like ongoing underway. So those are some of the things that um, I was thinking about. I was also, I mean, another, I guess, so that was one aspect um, and thinking about how much of that I wanted to gesture towards in the work and how much of that I wanted to um, leave out. And so, it feels like things are a little bit more steady and stable now in terms of understanding we're going to be here for maybe like two weeks at least, uh, which is more than you could say for before. But, um, and then I think that the, the protests and the acknowledgement of a racial pandemic and the introduction of the words systemic racism into uh, white culture and media and politics has also been something that's been on my mind that I'm thinking about. So like one of the things that I ended up doing for this project, a lot of times I collect many of the pieces before I make the work, um, especially if the work is much broader and more detailed in scope. But um, one of the things that I uh, ended up thinking about was like specific people who you might call queer elders or people who had been around in the community forever and ever in New York City who died from COVID. So like Mona Foote and Lorena Bojas who um, 
Mona is a, was a drag queen um, and hostess uh, in the club scene for a long time. And she hosted something called Star Search. Um, and then Lorena Bojas was an activist in um, Queens and often helped undocumented and um, otherwise precarious queer and Latinx folks. So like thinking about them, but also um, I ended up doing drawings of every, like there's one panel in the, in the mural or the installation, which is going to be like a large group scene that winds its way between protest and celebration. So it's gonna start as a sort of a protest and then become more like a party or a sex party on the other end. But the among the figures that are populating that part of um, that passage of the work are gonna be um, all the trans and gender non-conforming people that were murdered this year. So that, um, that was some a way in which I think the pandemic actually shaped um, the work in a way that I wouldn't have expected. In part because um, I was thinking a lot about, like I went to, there was a trans rights march um, by the Brooklyn Museum, which I attended and I was so amazed to see 15,000 people there um, because I had also been at the very first trans rights March in 2005, which was amazing, but it was just like a very, very different energy and just to see how things have like grown and shifted and see how important these parts of the movement are for um, both giving us like a larger social and economic analysis of what's happening um, and also the sheer horror of the amount of brutality. Um, and I think that that um, aspect of the project is very much related to these larger, more abiding ongoing questions in my practice of trying to understand how to shed light on certain narratives that are ongoing um, and certain disappearances of bodies from the system, from legibility, from access to survival. Um, and so again, it was making me think about the time around September 11th and the years that came after it, because during that time, I started working on a project called Index of the Disappeared with artist and filmmaker Mariam Ghani. Um, in which we created an archive of disappearance, um, and which included, um, which began around detention, deportation, and other forms of disappearance of mostly Muslim and South Asian men who were being profiled in the post 9-11 uh, era, but that a similar kind of logic of wanting to have some kind of a archival approach, but with some with warmth 
like something that we call warm data, collecting warm data or having a way in which there was a different sense of humanity or engagement or touch with the subject. So that was a lot of what motivated and sort of guided my process of collecting that information. Um, yeah, and it's been like, it's, I think it's now 30, 28 or 30 people. Um, it's really intense. Well, that is, it's an amazing project and it's amazing to hear how many, how many good things are happening um, with your practice, even while sifting through incredibly like powerful and devastating um, threads out of history that continue to emerge. And so I'm, I'm gonna ask a sort of complex question because you hit on everything I wanted to ask about. And so it's making me think about things a little differently. Um, and so the, the question I was going to ask that I'll, I'll then frame is um, how, do we, how do we healthfully navigate the sense of incredible urgency that we have in moments of intense affective saturation? So like, how do we keep going? How do you keep creating when it seems like everything is falling apart? Um, and what you were just speaking about and thinking about your work and like the Unearthly Delight series and um, you just have this amazing attention to the coexistence of creation and destruction. Um, and so these moments of, of devastation can also be really powerfully productive. Um, and so I guess I was going to ask you about how the, the generative friction of creation and destruction helps you to stay focused. Yeah, no, I mean, I was gonna add, you know, that there, there has been also a lot of, um, like, discovery and joy in this period of time. Um, one thing that we longtime residents of New York have been talking about was this incredible gift of having the time to watch the spring unfold because you had to walk, because you were around the same place all the time, you might actually notice that something started flowering when it wasn't flowering yesterday. And like that, I mean, it's, you know, it sounds a little, it could sound a little overly optimistic or it could seem a little bit like cheesy, but I do really think that the, the connection with nature, with plants, with the outdoors and seeing the resilience um, has been like extremely generative. So I would say that spending time in Prospect Park or Greenwood Cemetery with the people that I love the most, um, taking long walks at night, um, being able actually in a, in a way that's like um, experiential to be able to reflect on my childhood because the city has become again a lot more quiet um, and not on this incredibly steep commercial incline of becoming even more of a mall than it was yesterday you know so those 
those things have all been um, wonderful. But I think that, I think that cutting out a lot of the busyness um, has been really great to kind of see what resources we all have and how we move forward with what we have. Also staying in touch with friends from, I mean, I spent a lot of, I've been regularly in touch more this year than ever before with friends from Berlin, from India, from Bangladesh, from the UK, just like Milan comparing notes in the beginning, but then just also, you know, this is one of the first times where that I can remember where everybody in the world had the same problem at the same time. And it's the first time in my life that New York City ever had a curfew. And so history has also been really important to me because I was like, I can't even remember, not even during the subway strike, not even during the summer of Sam, which I remember where there was a blackout, not during the 2005 blackout, not during 9-11, never was there a curfew. Like, what is this? And the last time there was a curfew in New York, it was also in relation to a black soldier, I believe, being killed. Um, so, like, it's interesting just to see how this didn't actually radically change everything. It just brought into relief um, a lot of the patterns and the constraints that so many people had been um, living with. Yes. So, uh, that also anticipated the, the final question I wanted to ask, which is, we've been talking about utopias and your new project um, it's about a utopia and not only envisioning the future but recuperating the past differently to help us see a better path through the present and to the future and I guess along those lines what are the lessons from this moment that you think you will carry with you into the future? I think for myself personally, um, definitely a kind of a reorientation towards time um, that I would like to keep with me. I mean, you would hope that this extraordinary period would catalyze change for different individuals, but also institutions, sectors of society, um, approaches to history. But I don't necessarily know how quickly that's going to happen because, for example, in art, the people who control it and the people who control the money have not changed. So that uh, that's something that we need to um, keep at the front and center of our mind is that there are, of course, going to be some changes on very like practical everyday levels but in terms of the the way institutions could open up to embrace uh, a more nuanced and um or any kind of understanding of the moment depending on what the institution is um is is a big project moving forward and i think that um Another way that 
I'll keep this moment with me as I think that I'm feeling like education is really, really important in terms of how I personally might be able to contribute or how many people could contribute to rebuilding um, New York, but also rebuilding some of the belief systems and requirements that you know ruled the pre-pandemic world like for example no one would have ever said to me prior to the pandemic you know don't come for two days to denver colorado that's going to be really bad for the environment and really hard on your body uh why don't you just give a lecture this way or why don't we think of something else to do so i think things like that um are really good you know the amount of travel and the amount of engagement that was happening was i think overwhelming for a lot of people and especially for people who have any kind of a public facing aspect or performative aspect of their job um, i mean nothing in comparison to what you know essential workers and public school teachers who are my friends that i know are dealing with but um, nonetheless, I think that there's, there's a, there is a kind of an urgency, um, which I actually also, um, which I actually also thought about in my work. I did, I didn't mention this earlier, but I also um, did a project with the Public Art Fund that's up right now um, in its 50 artists were asked to create some work in response to the last several months. Um, and so I, I'll send you an image of this, but I, uh, I created a work that's called Urgency. So. And that's based on this idea of like mythic archetypes and also on tarot and other kinds of um, collective knowledge that people seem to rely on more when things feel precarious. Um, so I was thinking about what would urgency look like if she was, if she was with us. Well, that is an amazing note to end on. Really looking forward to that and the Leslie Lohman installation. And thank you very much for speaking with me today. Yeah, thank you so much. Um, I'm looking forward to hearing these, hearing what everyone has to say this is a wonderful project thank you